0: Um, so the it's, of course the other question is, um, do you just want to do this podcast solo? On June I can can go.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: right, yeah, real funny, real funny.
1: It'll probably be so much better. The,
2: <laughs> the difference is, of course, when I'm solo sailing, I know what I'm doing. Not when I'm solo podcasting. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> just don't close the window before the recording uploads, and it'll all be good.
2: Welcome to Transpose, a podcast. In every episode, industry visionaries bring their unique talents and insights into the transformation zone and transpose the ethos of an iconic brand, product, or experience into another market. Thought leaders, innovators, and creatives travel far into the future, unleashing disruption and a little humor along the way.
0: Welcome to Transpose. I'm Justin Dobb, and with me, as always, is fellow innovator, technologist, and futurist, Anju Ahuja. Today, we're going to talk about innovation as if it were a matter of life and death. Because for our guest today, some days it can be. Stay tuned.
1: All right. Randall Reeves, it is a pleasure to have you joining us today to talk about your adventure a solo sailing trip around two continents in one season. The first of its kind, 384 days at sea alone. And before we get to any of the details around this heroic adventure, some of the mishaps and how you worked your way through it, and the critical thinking that went into all of the optimization and all of the live in real time problem solving you had to do. I wanted to give you a quick overview of how your fellow counterparts in the sailing world see you. So rather than make up our own list of things that you remind us of, we crowdsourced your list of words, thanks to uh, the help of your lovely wife. And here's what they all had to say about you. To be the first, loving solitude, content, modest, generous, adventurous. I love this one, stubborn, curious, and dauntless. So with that, Justin likes to take what he calls the elevator ride, 15 floors, tell them all about yourself.
0: <laughs> but, but I'm guessing there are no elevators
2: on your hustle. On your Stairs we have, but not elevators, you are correct.
0: <laughs> so, so, so pretend, you know, we have mutual friends and, and you invited me out just for a nice casual sale and I had no idea about all of your backstory and everything you've done. So we're at that party and I'm I'm as cliched as they come and say, so Randall, what do you do?
2: (laughs) I am an explorative sailor, a discovery sailor. I have been sailing solo much of my adult life and have always dreamed about uh, long, long, long ocean passage And uh, back in 2017, I I organized what I call the figure eight voyage, which was an attempt to sail around the world in a strange figure eight pattern, San Francisco, down to Cape Horn, around Antarctica, around the bottom of the world, up the Atlantic, through the Arctic, and back to San Francisco in one year alone, about 40,000 miles. Uh, I had done a bunch of sailing by that point, but it was kind of the biggest thing I could Ever imagine, and that was that was how I got started in it.
0: That's the biggest thing I can imagine. In fact, I can't imagine it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was hard for me as well. I mean, part of the backstory there is that I did some cruising in 2010 to 2012 in, in a little boat: San Francisco to Mexico, Mexico to French Polynesia, to Hawaii, to Alaska, and back to San Francisco over the course of two years, all solo. My wife. Lovely wife, Joanna, met me in the warm places, refused to come to the cold places, um, <laughs> but there was lots of stopping and lots of exploring. And when I got back, what I realized is I really, really like this a lot and I'd like to keep going, um, but I'm married and uh, you know I am supposed to go back to work at this point. So I remember having a long conversation with Joe at one point and she said, yeah, fine, you can go again, just make sure you do something really big. And the figure it was kind of the biggest thing I could think of at the time. It's it's a combination of two really long, really historic routes. The one around the bottom of the world, that's called the Clipper Route. It's uh, back in the days of of sailing trade. It was the only way for goods to make it from Europe to Asia and the western coast of America prior to the Panama Canal. And it's very long and it's very dangerous. And so that route across the top of the world, over the top of Canada and Alaska, much shorter, uh, but ice impacted most of the time, was uh, explored for a long time. As an alternate to that southern route. And I thought, well, what if I could take those two and combine them into one super long route? Frankly, I didn't know if I could do it. It hadn't been done at that point, hadn't even been tried. Um, and it was a long way. 40,000 miles is a really long way when you're, <laughs> when you're, you know, on a, when on a good day you're making 140 miles. That's kind of, we, we in sailboats, we think of speed in terms of miles per day. and. And my boat averages about 120 to 140 miles a day. It's a long ways. Circumference of the globe is 21,600 nautical miles. So 40,000 miles is almost twice, almost twice around the globe in one go. It was it was a big, it was a tall order.
1: Absolutely. So
2: <laughs>
0: your penchant for understatement is impressive.
1: modesty comes
2: comes with practice (laughs) so
1: you know we interview a lot of people who we think are innovative ambitious types but i think they would all be the first to admit that their life their lives were never at stake in pursuing one of their big intellectually (laughs) ambitious goals yeah how did you test the feasibility of all of this before embarking on it
2: well that's a great question Uh, i'd like to say first that I'm not an adventure sailor in the typical sense. I'm not out there for the thrill. Uh, although there's quite clearly, as I proved during the first unsuccessful attempt, there was quite a bit of danger involved. It's not It's not like, this isn't, uh, what do you call it when guys jump off a cliff with a squirrel suit? What's that called? Uh, uh, base jumping? Base jumping. So it's not that, right? Uh, this is like super long marathon, go slow, see everything kind of travel.
1: Does it also involve a squirrel suit?
2: It does not. <laughs> but it still requires that you plan it out. And, and planning is part of the fun. And the point of this uh, uh, segue was, when you've thought about something, as long as I had thought about this, and when you planned it as thoroughly as I had planned it, a lot of the sense of danger is filtered away because you've thought about, you may not have thought of every eventuality at all. Yeah. I didn't clearly. But you've thought about so much, it now looks possible. It now looks really possible. So it's de-risked. So I guess, yeah, in a certain sense, you you de-risked it. I'm sure that's typical of of other people in other lines of quote-unquote work. Um, But for someone coming into my world, I get that question a lot. How do you deal with that sense of risk? And well, I didn't really, sure, I knew there was risk, but I didn't think there was that much of course i was wrong about that as well but
0: <laughs> now was that a linear process of thinking or was there a moment after you undertook the planning where you there was this flash and you said no this is totally doable was there like a single moment or is that something that just built slowly over time
2: um somewhere in the middle it wasn't uh a, a, like a spark epiphany part of the problem that i had to initially was figuring out what the distance was in fact mm-hmm. um If I'm using paper charts, I would have had to have several hundred of them. Um, Electronic charts, strangely enough, don't do a great job of going down to the bottom of the world and up to the top of the world. And that's where I needed the line I was drawing on the chart to go. So figuring out just the raw distance was initially a challenge. And then once you've figured out the distance, you have to figure out a vessel that can carry enough food and water for you for a year is uh strong enough to take the huge seas and the big winds in the southern part of the globe and and ice impact in in the northern part of the globe and is fast enough to make the route in one season part of the challenge of the route was i have to get down to the bottom of the world and do that circumnavigation of antarctica and then get up to the top of the world and i have to do that in sync with seasons i want to be in the south when it's the least worst weather and the only time I can get to the Arctic is in the summer when the ice has thawed. So getting a boat that was fast enough to do all of that was was part of the challenge. And then making sure, you know, it's going to be a big boat, but it's got to be simple enough that a man of not particular height or particular strength like myself can handle. So it was, then that took months, actually, to, to kind of get all of that information into an Excel spreadsheet and, you know, push the go start on the express uh, spreadsheet and then, oh, wow. Okay, so this yeah, right this could actually be possible. I could actually do this in in that kind of vessel. And so it took several months to kind of piece it all together. then then yes, it's possible. I've I figured out how to make it work. But then the challenge was to go find that boat. Um, yeah. And once I'd found that boat, learn that boat, <laughs> uh, you know then then the spreadsheets of the food and, uh, and the emergency supplies just you know the, the project goes on and on. But there, there was a time there at the beginning when I, I wasn't really sure it was physically possible to do that length in, uh, in a single season.
1: You, you touched on the boat, and I think this would be a great time to kind of dive into a little bit more. It's about Moli, right? Is that how you pronounce it?
2: That is. It's the Hawaiian word for the Laysan albatross. Okay. And I'm a particular fan of birds and albatrosses in particular.
1: Well, we're design junkies, and um, we both spent a lot of time in the communications industry as well. Uh, tell us all about the boat and what you needed to outfit it with so you could also transmit, you know, the how things are going, all the storytelling that you produced.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was uh, probably, other than the sailing itself, it was the most difficult part of the project. The boat that I ended up with took probably a year, year and a half to find. I I went through the Northwest Passage, which is a... An inland passage over the top of Alaska and Canada, uh, through the Arctic, the high Arctic. I, I practiced run that in 2014. For someone who does blue water sailing, sailing from here to Hawaii, Hawaii to French Polynesia, that's you know those kinds of, of ocean crossings are pretty easy uh, to grok to, to kind of get it, get your head around. I couldn't get my head around going through the Arctic. It's not blue water. It's really constricted passages. Uh, really. Icy, really narrow, not well charted because nobody's up there. And so I, I took the opportunity a few years before trying the figure eight of doing that as a crew member. And that taught me a bunch. Uh, one of the things it taught me was that the vessels I had been looking at for the figure eight were not going to be sufficient. I'd been looking at uh, production vessels, the kind of stuff we make here in the U.S., all fine for sailing. Uh, but I really needed heavy, heavy impact Resistant materials, metal boats in particular. We just don't do that kind of construction here in the US. So it took a long time to source that boat. I flew to all kinds, I flew up to Alaska, I flew to Grenada, Uh, I flew to Florida, trying to find the right boat. Finally found a boat in Homer, Alaska that had been built back in 1989 for a German guy who wanted to be the first person to sail around the Americas. So Germany through the Arctic, down around Cape Horn, back to Germany. It hadn't been done at that point. He contracted an aluminum boat building yard in Norderney, Germany, that was famous for really fine yachts. You know, lots of paint, lots of teak wood, fine furnishings, really pretty boats. He basically said, look, uh, here's what I want to do. I don't need a fine yacht. What I need is a tractor, something super tough and super simple. And what they made for him is the boat that I ended up with, uh, aluminum construction. We typically uh, associate aluminum material with light racing type boats. Mm -hmm. This is heavy, um, double the thickness of aluminum plate. It has crash bulkheads, meaning there are doorways inside the boat that mean that if I get a puncture in the bow, I can close that door off and keep that water that's flowing into the boat in that bow section. Um, It it is steered very simply. It has a tiller and a rudder as opposed to a wheel and quadrants. It's a very big rig meaning a tall mast and big sails, but they're simply set up, uh, set up for single handing. Uh, after Clark Steed, the, the guy who had this boat designed, did his successful circumnavigation of the Americas. He sold it to a, another owner named Tony Gooch, who owned the boat for 16 years and did a lot of solo sailing, pretty much everywhere in high latitudes. And then in 2002, left from his home in Victoria, sailed around the world nonstop uh, via, the, via the capes, via the Southern Ocean route that i talked about. Uh, the kind of the joke in my family is that my boat had done the figure eight voyage prior to my purchase <laughs> of it, all in one piece, as I did. So uh, the, the, it's just a, a great boat. Um, flush deck, meaning that it doesn't have a lot of, of structure up above the deck that can be damaged. It has a little pilot house that I can stand in, so I can be in protection below but through small windows can see the whole deck and how the boat is running. Um, simply set up. So I don't have a refrigerator. I don't have a freezer. I don't have a water maker. Uh, I do have autopilot, but the boat is actually steered by a mechanical, it's called a wind vane. So it's a mechanical device that uses the wind direction to tell the rudder what to do. And there's no electricity involved. It's all wind paddles and little pieces of line that go through blocks back to the rudder and all that kind of stuff. So super, super simple you kind of figure on an adventure as long as mine that eventually everything is going to break at least once. So I have to I have to have a boat that is simple enough that I can yep. repair it and that I can carry enough spares to make those repairs. Um, what else can I tell you about the boat? It uh, is pretty big for a guy, uh, what am I, 155 pounds? It's a 45-foot boat, weighs almost 20 tons. It uh, carries 200 gallons of water, and I drink about three quarters of a gallon a day in fresh water. So I knew right out the gate, as it were, right out leaving Golden Gate Bridge, that I had probably 250 or so days of water on board, and I caught water along the way, specifically in the doldrums, so that when I made my first stop, 237 days after departure, I almost had almost as much water on board as when I'd departed. So I got lucky there. Uh, just, again, the focus on the boat was strength, simplicity, enough speed uh, to make the route and the timing required, and enough space to carry the, the food. I figured I had something on the order of 5,000 pounds of food on board when I when I left in October.
1: And you ended up towing a boat that was in distress at some point. Was that on this trip or on the first attempt?
2: That was on the second attempt. On the okay. first attempt, I never made it into the Arctic at all. I, okay. I got into my own Kinds of trouble down in the Southern Ocean. So the yeah, that was in the Arctic. That was in the middle section, very dicey. Uh, in that middle section, there's not a lot of depth and there's not a lot of current. So the ice there actually has to melt. In the extreme other ends, the the sea is open enough that it can the ice can actually flush out into the ocean in general. But in the middle parts above the middle part of Canada, you look. It's called the Canadian Archipelago, and the ice gets really congested there and can just sit. Yes, I was kind of in company with other boat named Alioth. Uh, great sailors, great boat, very well set up, had done thorough a thorough job of planning. I'd met them in Halifax a few months earlier, was really impressed with how Vincent had handled the boat and had handled planning. He had done at least as good a job as I had, but uh, you just can't plan everything. And, and what happened to them is their transmission on the engine blew up oh. and... Many, many wow. spares are carried on board, but we don't carry spare transmissions. <laughs> and so they were in, the, in this middle section. And what you probably didn't know about the Arctic is once you get above about 48 to 50 degrees north, you get up into what's called the polar high pressure system. There's not much wind up there. Gales occasionally, but in terms of steady wind, you just don't have it. It's a lot of really calm airs. So these guys, were, they're right in the middle of this 5,000 mile passage, and they have no way of getting to the next village. So yes, I I uh, uh, caught up with them. They kind of tacked back and forth in, the, in a little open cove with no ice for a couple of days while I caught up to them. And then we sailed together. We had caught uh, some unusually lovely north wind for a while. That gave out. We saw a big gale coming down on the weather. We neither one of I didn't want to tow him. He didn't want to be towed. But uh, neither of us wanted to be out in the middle of, it, of that gale in the Arctic. So I, yeah, I towed them a couple hundred miles into Cambridge. Cambridge Bay. So, I was glad to be able to do that. I'm sure that was uh, a way of keeping them safe.
1: I mean, it's it's, it's a wonderful story and obviously it's the, the right human thing to do. I'm curious how you even assess the feasibility of that, right? Cuz you're in real time trying to figure out can I actually navigate this? Do we get us both in trouble? I mean, yeah. were there things that gave well, you Well, that some, was like, that was
2: why the that's why Vincent had declined. I'd offered several times. You know, as as a as a sailor, if if help is asked you give it right that's just that's the code because that's what you need if you know that that's what you would need in case of of emergency
1: and i wish uh, actually most industries and cultures had that code because i think that's that's what really stands out here which is your there's an obligation it's understood
2: yeah at sea unlike on the big sea where the big ships are it's even the same with the big ships if sailboat calls in distress the big ship which is on a very tight schedule. You know, supposed to ring, arrive in uh, Shanghai at ten fifty-five on such and such a date to unload. They'll actually turn around, and come back, and pick you up, and they won't charge you. It's because the code is, if you're in distress, you are helped, and that's the that's the name of the game. So, in any case, I, I had offered a couple of times to tow Alioth, which was the name of the vessel, because we all saw the gale coming in. Uh, weather forecasting is very good. We knew three or four or five days out that we had this big weather coming in. He did not want to accept because he just lost his engine and he knew my engine was quite old. And if, you know, if I had engine troubles, that would be the end of the season for me as well. Um, and we, we kind of just drifted around in company for the better part of half a day while we wished for wind and tried to think up other solutions. And finally at the end of it, it it wasn't really, you know, to your point, it wasn't really a, a function of going below and, opening up a spreadsheet and figuring out what the risks were, it was we don't have a lot of options at this point. Uh, he says, Randall, why don't you go ahead to safety? I say, I'm not going to leave you here. You know, if you're going to sit out the gale here, I'll sit it out with you. But that was really, really dangerous for both of us. And so basically by uh, stonewalling him, I finally won.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, But it was a risk. I mean, the the engine is original to the boat. It's small even for my boat. It's an undersized engine so towing you know another vessel of, a, of equal size and displacement was a real risk but we went slow and we had time and we made it so we were both lucky so
0: talk a little bit about other times you know you, you said like you had spare parts and everything breaks once what goes through your mind when you're faced with an unexpected problem
2: uh, at what time of day
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about sleep later I've been fascinated by that <laughs> Yeah.
2: so uh, I want to talk about two things just the general, the general rule is something breaks every day what it turns into is a fun game can you figure out how to fix that thing that just broke you kind of have thought it through in the past, you know you have a lot of spares on board, it is highly likely you don't have the exact right spare for that specific thing but you've got a whole foc'sle Full of tools and spare parts, and can you figure out how to take this thing and that thing and that other thing and put them together in such a way that they'll fix this problem? You know enough to get you to the next port. It, you do a lot kind of that kind of thing a lot on the boat. I think specifically, for example, uh, the wind vane device on the back of the boat that steers the boat, the mechanical, non-electrical device made of mostly of metal, so super strong, but all of the connections between the moving parts are plastic bushings. Hmm. And the designer of this wind vane says in the manual that we would like you to replace these every 20,000 miles. <laughs> well, I'm not stopping for 31,500 miles. Yeah. And what I found was, specifically given my type of boat and where I was, that I was actually wearing those plastic bushings out about every 5,000 to 8,000 miles. So it is not designed to fix at sea. It hangs over the end of the boat and you've got all these hundreds of little plastic bushings. You have to get them out and back in. So figuring out how to do that without taking the unit off of the back of the boat, inside the boat, into controlled environment was a real intellectual trick. And and you, you face that kind of thing all the time. And it turns out to be once you've done it a couple of times and realized, oh, you know what? My brain can actually fill the gaps (laughs) in the time of need, once you realize and get the confidence that you can actually do that, it becomes fun. Actually, uh, I I
1: want to unpack that because I think you just hit on a couple of really interesting points. So earlier on, you mentioned you kind of make a game of it, right, And to see how you can solve the problem that's at hand. How do you get the will up and the confidence in that that moment to start that game? Like, how do you say, okay, this is it. Like I'm gonna transport myself from a moment of crisis to a moment of ingenuity. Is there some kind of interior monologue or some secret step? Because <laughs> I think all innovators go through
2: this. That's a that's a great question. I, I think uh, I think two things immediately. One is that no, it just happens. The first couple of times something occurs and you don't know what to do, there's a bit of a bit of panic, and luckily, hopefully, it's not you know, the first one or the second one or the third one is not life threatening, and you have time to think it through. And one of the one of the great things about sailing on. Boats at sea is that things tend to happen very slowly. It's not like I'm flying a seven forty seven. It's not like I have three minutes to figure this thing out. I may have days to figure this thing out yeah. um, because I'm only going six miles an hour, and it's you know three thousand miles to the next port of call. So I've got time usually to to work things through. And so once you've gone through the first couple of incidences like that, then and, and you realize you know what this I can do this, then it becomes a bit of fun, and you actually. Try to anticipate stuff. You know, I talk about uh, dealing with emergencies uh, in the past tense, and the truth is, if you're smart, what you really spend your time trying to do during your downtime is, you know, casting your eyes over the boat and and figuring out what's, what's going to give out next. So, wh- one of the constant problems on sailboats is chafe. Ropes mm-hmm. go from here to there. They go through blocks. They make a, you know, 90-degree turn. From yeah. the deck to the sail and where they pass through that block, they're always abrading, you know, back and forth and back and forth. And after, you know, a couple hundred days, it's going to give out. When is it going to give out? Can I do something today? Can I line that rope with a uh, chafe uh, protection gear? Can I replace it? Can I shorten it up a little bit so that a different piece is moving through the block? So, you, you in fact, you you spend a lot more time thinking through what can I do today that's preventative, uh, well, at least hopefully. <laughs> that you do than, than spending time on fixing problems. But I, but there's another part of that question that you ask, which I was faced with in the South. I, I got into a really big storm in the South uh, below what are called the Crozet Islands,
1: mm-hmm.
2: about halfway between South Africa and Australia. It was one of those uh, gales that I'd seen coming. I was all the way down at 50 degrees South at that point, which is way, way down there. I'd gotten all the way back up to about 46 degrees South, but I hadn't gotten high enough and I was really in the heart of the storm. Winds were 50, 55, 60 knots, which is, which is pretty big wind. It's not the biggest we'd seen, but that's a strong gale. And what I realized later was that we were in some very strange currents as well. There's a, a big ocean plateau around that group of islands that makes the currents act differently and tends to stack the seas up. We had really, really tall vertical seas and during the f- the night of this gale I just couldn't figure out how to make the boat safe. We were picked up and thrown down, picked up and thrown down. And sailing call it a knockdown. That's where the boat goes all the way over on its side and the mast is in the water.
1: Mm. Oh. And that's wow. bad.
2: That's bad. Yes. I imagine it is terrifying. Uh, it's, it's very wet actually. <laughs> so that had happened a couple of times overnight. One of the strange things about a gale at night is that a gale implies cloud cover. Thick, thick cloud cover, so there's no light. It's absolute black. But you've got these seas that are 25, 30, 35 feet tall. They're steep, and they're breaking. I don't know if you've ever been out to like a surf a surfing area where it's right. not a it's not a good day, and all the seas are closing out.
1: Yep.
2: Um, that's what we're in. Where I before the sun had gone down, I could see the seas and they were crashing. The width of crash was a couple hundred feet. And I remember thinking before the sun went down, I don't know how we're going to make it through tonight. I just, if we get caught in one of those, we're mincemeat. And so we did. We got caught in a couple of those boats thrown over. I try to figure out how to position the boat better in the sea. I i jibe around to a, a different tack as the as day is coming on. And I remember crawling back into the pilot house just as the boat is, is like l- physically lifted straight up in the air and spun around. To to the right and then thrown from the top of the sea down into the trough of the next on its side, which is quite a feat. You know, twenty tons of material <laughs> to have wow. it thrown like a surfboard is is quite an experience. I remember sitting in the pilot house when the boat landed on its side mm. and the the pilot house was just f- f- instantly filled with white water, just Ooh. filled, and I didn't know what was happening. I remember the boat went down, crushed, came up. I could now see through the window that before had been covered with spume and spray. I could now hear the gale really loudly where with the boat closed up like it had been, uh, the sounds are somewhat muffled. I could see broken glass everywhere. Kind of those three things happened in sequence before I realized, oh my goodness, we've broken a window. Windows are about one foot by two foot. And so not very big, but in that Instant of being laid over in the sea, we probably had a, a 100 or 200 gallons of water in the boat. Oh, my gosh. And I did not have storm windows, meaning emergency devices you can attach on either side of the broken piece. It was a, it was a one foot by two foot hole. I had nothing to put there in its place. So now we're in the worst storm we've ever experienced. Uh, I can't figure out a way to make the boat safe and have a big hole <laughs> in the boat. And I don't have anything to plug the hole with. And you would think that would be a perfect time to panic. I mean, everything has gone wrong perfectly. I'm panicking right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're panicking for you.
2: (laughs) And what was interesting is how much I didn't panic. And I don't say this from a a point of, you know, good on me. It's just that when, when the crush comes, especially if you've been out there for a while and have been doing this for a while and know your boat as well as I did at that point. When the crush comes, you kind of just like go in and figure it out. And I remember sitting there thinking, I don't know what to do. I have no idea what I'm going to do. But well, I had a boat full of water. So the first thing I should do is get the water out. So I sat down and pumped water. I don't have any electric bilge pumps on the boat. Everything's manual. a big three foot handle, a big pump the size of a pie. And I just you know sat there for 20 minutes pumping the water out while I tried to think through what the options were and finally hit on something. I had some wooden bunk boards in, in the front of the boat that I could, I could pull out, drill holes in them, attach bolts through them, and then kind of compress them, mm-hmm. those two boards on each side. And so everything worked fine, right? I, I, I got the boat put back together just fine. We didn't get knocked down again. By this point, we we're at the tail end of the gale. Um, but it really was striking to me. That was the first time that I was in a situation that I would have judged to be thoroughly life threatening. You know, I'm, I'm out in the middle of nowhere. I, it took me 48 days from there to get to the safety of Tasmania. So that's a long ways. Uh, it's just, it struck me uh, and still strikes me how in the extremity you figure it out.
1: Yeah. So I found what you just said clarified something for me that I've always wondered. I Early on in my career, I did a lot of work in turnarounds, you know, companies totally defaulting. It's mm. like you gotta lay people off, you gotta make sure they land safely somewhere else. And people would ask me, like, how did it feel? And I would always say, Well, with, when things are that urgent, you don't really focus on how you're feeling. Yeah. You just you go from one step to another. It's very clarifying in a yeah.
2: way.
1: Um, and I feel like oftentimes when you have a longer time frame to really focus on big audacious innovations. It's very easy to get distracted by how you might feel about yeah. what's going on and you know to overassess or underassess risk. So yep. that that was interesting that you could articulate that. My life was never in danger. I'll just put that out there. So <laughs> that might change things in an extraordinary way.
2: People people often ask me how do you stay motivated? Uh, so from San Francisco down to Cape Horn, all the way around to Cape Horn again, up the Atlantic all the way up to Halifax, Nova Scotia. 31,000 miles, 237 days out of the sight of land, nonstop, how do you stay motivated? My goodness, you must be so brave. And I I answer that with, well, when the only way to get home (laughs) is to keep going, it's really not that hard to stay motivated. Part of the fun of it is that I like being out there, but I did find the incentive quite easy to to understand.
0: (laughs) Some people have survival thrust upon them is
2: what. Well. <laughs> <Yeah,
0: right. laughs> <laughs> I'm a little fascinated by the, the way you phrased something and you s- used the phrase we a lot.
2: Ah, interesting.
0: Yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit? I, I, I mean, I'm assuming you mean the boat. And I just, so what is that relationship like?
2: Yeah. So it, it's not another human being. Uh, I get that question a lot. Uh, I use we a lot, both in writing and in, in podcasts. Uh, no, it's not another person on the boat. I think it's partly yes. I have a relationship with the boat. It is a companion. Uh, it's it's my it's my life source. Right? That yeah. you know, one quarter inch of, of aluminum hull is all that's protecting me from oblivion. But it don't, you don't want to really think about that beyond the first couple of nights. You you get into a relationship and a rhythm with the boat and the and the things on the boat. Well, interestingly enough, one of the things that I interact with most other than the stove that makes the coffee is the wind vane, the thing that steers the boat. Because yeah, uh, right. it can only steer the boat to the present wind, and the present wind is changing every five minutes to two hours to, you know, eight hours or whatever it is. So I'm, I'm constantly working with that mechanism to keep me on a, a compass course that I prefer. And so you do begin to think of these inanimate objects as animate in some way. Yeah. Um, uh, the boat has a personality. I know what she likes. I know the tack that she likes. I know the speed at which she is most comfortable, at the the heel angle at which she'll go the fastest, Um, you know, things like this. And and so I do do tend to think of it as we in that regard. I also tend to think of it as we in that I don't really feel alone. Um, I know, sure, I know that I am and I have chosen this, but I feel a certain companionship with the sea and the waves and the albatross and the, you know, the whales and the dolphins. Uh, so it's like I'm in my own, I like, I'm, I'm, I'm in a jungle, right? It wouldn't look like a jungle to you. And, and there's a lot to relate to when I'm there. So I don't really think of it as, as being alone.
1: See, that's really interesting because it, your background is in hospitality, and you spend all of this time as a GM of these major <laughs> institutions that have created ambiance and experiences for other individuals. And when you're out there not dealing with humans, it feels like, it sounds to me like you're not feeling the absence of it.
2: No, that's correct. I've never, never thought of it that way, actually. You're correct. I have spent my career working cheek by jowl with other people. Um, I've often said that working in a restaurant is like working in a submarine. Because you are that close to people all the time, being out there, being in the middle of the ocean, is something that also suits my personality, and it is both. And people often uh, come into conversation with me, thinking that I am going to be an uh, sour loner, uh, kind of a guy who wishes that now that he's on land, lived in a you know single shack in the middle of the forest somewhere. I am not antisocial, but I definitely enjoy seeing that quote-unquote real world that hasn't been moderated by us yeah
1: that's beautifully put
2: it's not that it's really any more real than what we're living in right now uh i enjoy this too but to to have the privilege of seeing what the world is like without electricity and billboards and you know advertisements and the sound of the freeway and all that kind of stuff oh no no that's bad <laughs> But being able to to get beyond that and kind of get a sense of what the earth looks like and feels like and how the other animals interact is just great. I just really enjoy it. You know, when when an albatross sails up to the boat to kind of check it out, I'm looking at an animal that spends 95% of its life beyond the side of land and most of that time flying. Not really flying in the sense that we understand, it glides, it uses the... The, the, the right. air pressure on one side of this and the next wave to, to sail off. He can even sleep while he's flying. It could, could well be that he's never seen a human before. I've had storm petrels in, in the really dark of night when they can't see the boat. They're using the phosphorescence that the boat creates as it passes through the water to help pick out the little crustaceans that they eat. But they oftentimes it's so dark, they can't actually see the boat itself and they'll crash into it and then land in the cockpit. These birds never, ever go to land. Uh, they have legs that are about three inches long, but they never use them. So they like end up rolling around the cockpit because they can't actually walk. So I, I go into the cockpit and I pick this little thing up. It's about half the size of a, of a pigeon. And I hold it in my hand and I think, oh, this thing has never seen a human before. Oh, that's just wow. amazing to me. Yeah, that's magical. Um, and that it, it tries to pick my hand off and it hurts, so I throw it back in the air. So it's a very, it, 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 it doesn't last long. <laughs> they don't have much to say, but it's a really neat experience.
1: So how do each one of these adventures, you know the fact that you can be isolated consistently like in your game mode where you're figuring out how to get you know through one problem to the next, but physically, psychologically, how have these changed you, or do you feel you know not much changed after each one?
2: A very good question, and I find it really difficult to answer so i've I've gone away and come back many times at this point. I started doing long solo sales. In 2010, and I have about 90,000 miles of solo blue ocean sea miles at this point. Coming back is challenging. I usually anchor in Drake's Bay, which is a little bay north, about 20 miles north of San Francisco, for a day or two to kind of decompress or recompress, whichever the (laughs) word seems most appropriate (laughs) for entering. How does it changed? I I think maybe it has changed me in the sense that I, I have a sense that I can do that thing now, whatever that difficult thing is. I've done one of them now, and I have a sense of that. Yes, uh, you know, even a person of moderate height and strength, uh, with enough will and 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 ability to sit down with an Excel spreadsheet, can actually do that thing that seems at first set impossible. You know, a lot of impossible things are just a series of many, many smaller, very possible tasks. I had such a long runway from the first idea to the first launch, such a long runway that I had a had the ability to break it down into those smaller tasks and get a sense of what it's like to actually plan a really big project, uh, to plan a, a big adventure. But I, I don't know that it's I don't really feel like I'm, I'm not that guy that I was before I left. But then I don't, I don't, I don't know him anymore. So maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but let me let me uh,
0: probe that a different way, right? Yep. So astronauts, right? If the, there's a, an effect called the overview effect, right? When they get up, and they can see the entire Earth, basically, and it, and they find it changes their perspective on how they fit into things, that they feel more connected to humanity, things like that. Is there any kind of feeling like that, that, I mean, I've never been a solo sailor. So, uh, you know, when you are out there for that long, do you feel a different kind of connection? Like you, you've hinted at a little bit, like to the wildlife and
2: the... The jungle. Yeah. I guess I, I, I do understand what you're saying about the astronauts. I have heard that as well. I have not had that kind of epiphany in that kind of way. Okay. I certainly do feel the connection to that, the big moving earth in a way that I didn't before I left. And I guess maybe you could say it's made me a little more easygoing and patient with my fellow man than I was when I departed, although I don't know what the dynamic there would be. But I I haven't had that profound kind of epiphany that you're referring to yeah i I think partly because i've been doing it for a long time and before doing it sailing i was kind of i was thinking about it and imagining it and doing a lot of shorter bits so i i didn't actually get to leave orbit (laughs) (laughs) you know one thing about the albatross and 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 sailboats i admire this albatross that i just talked about it never gets more than about 20 feet off the ocean and if i'm lucky neither do i uh, so I don't get that that kind of visual sense of overview. You do get a sense of how powerful the, the earth and earth dynamics are.
1: Right. When
2: you're in these big seas, we figure that a gallon of water weighs eight pounds and you have this mountain, literally mountain of water, approaching and crashing down on you. And the only thing that made that from level water to a mountain of water was wind over the course of time, something that feels... Ineffectual in your hand when you raise it above your head, but it can really build these mountains. And so you, you, you come to respect and admire the dynamics that make the world go round uh, for sure.
1: So you said you like games.
2: I didn't say that, actually, but okay. <laughs> you did not say that, actually. That's true. I stand
1: corrected. But you're good at them. Let's say that. You're good okay. at games. Um, has Joanna told you anything about the game that we play? Uh,
2: she, she, she said that it existed, and I don't think that she wanted to – she didn't want to spoil the surprise. So I hate surprises, oh. so go ahead.
1: <laughs>
2: well, if it makes you feel better, our,
0: our last guest uh, also hated the surprise. <laughs> Okay, so Randall, are you ready? I am ready. Okay. First, Brunswick Boats designed tiny homes. What innovations do they take from the boating design to a tiny home?
2: <laughs> uh, they come with freezers that hold enough food for six months. <laughs> The efficiency of layout would allow, for example, for me to store food underneath the sofa <laughs> um, that would allow the dining table to to pull back into the wall and open up the space for a, maybe a, a place to sleep.
1: I mean, this is nuts, but now that you ask that question, I really wish bathrooms could just be pop-up. Like, you know, you could use that floor space for other things the rest of the time and like you hardly ever use your bathroom and it takes up so much space in a house
2: yeah for sure
0: well you know for 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 a dude you know you just go off to the side of the boat and stand
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's actually something you're not supposed to do oh i would, i would imagine it's
1: is that part of the code I mean, I'm glad it is part of the code
2: no its it's a no it's not a part of the code it's part of the training uh and then it's it's one of the first things that dudes forget immediately <laughs>
0: It's it's kind of uh in the genetic code to yeah. stand and pee yeah. off the side of things.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I am learning so much. <laughs>
0: Not proud of it, just saying it's there. Uh, yeah. Wow.
1: <laughs> All right.
0: All right, I'm gonna change it up. So, Randall, right. you have a history in food service and hospitality and open table. Say you get to design food for astronauts or life on Mars based on what you've learned about food prep and diet as you went around the world what's on the menu in
2: space and why one of the things that is on the menu is a collection of items that the specific astronaut says that he likes and that may sound a little counterintuitive but one of the things that you're told when you plan a trip is make sure you have a variety of things and in truth what you really want when you're out there is the same thing You want those things, those three or four or five things that you really, really enjoy because you don't want to have to think about it. You don't want to have to think about how am I supposed to enjoy strawberry yogurt when really what I wanted was vanilla. So make sure that what you're packing for the astronaut is Not a variety so much as the core items that that astronaut really enjoys.
1: That's hilarious. You just described my partner, Chris, who lives off of three food items. And (laughs) and he he dares to call one of them a vegetable, but he lives off of (laughs) corn, rice, and potatoes. And like, does not want to ever think about food or food prep, although he's really a great cook and experiments in the kitchen, but that's just for the joy of the experiment. And then he's kind of done, but yeah, yeah, he'll, he'll just eat the same thing every night. (laughs) I find it fascinating. I
2: found it really a bit surprising, right? So I've lived in California most of my life. I've lived in the Bay area most of my life, been in restaurants most of my life. I'm used to really good food. Um, And I'm used to the kind of fresh foods we have access to and take for granted here in California. And then you get up in the middle of the ocean, no freezer, no fridge, no fresh food. It's all canned or dried, dry beans, dry pastas. And I was okay with it. I made comfort food, you know, curries and a shepherd's pie and pastas and rice with salmon and black beans. And I was great. I mean, when I got to Halifax, I was ready for a burger and some pizza, but I had not really missed any of it. So As long as the flavor profile is in that comfort food, fatty, rich area, I think you just kind of go on forever.
1: That's great.
0: All right. I'm going to switch topics again. Mm -hmm. So this is totally speculative. (laughs) Think of your favorite athlete in any category. What solo adventure would you send them on and why? Why? I mean, you have you have that power. I am just gonna.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you can will it.
0: Let's just, let, yeah, let's let's assume you have the power.
2: My favorite athlete. <laughs> I have to figure out who my favorite athlete is. Now, that's really a strange question because I don't get the sense that most of the athletes <laughs> that I follow, uh, which are either who are either in baseball or basketball, have the least compunction to do anything by themselves at all. Uh, great question. I will like to say Steph Curry. And I'm going to send him on a, a serial marathon from San Francisco to New York by himself.
1: Oh, that is so fun. We're still reaching out. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he'd be right on that.
2: <laughs> What's the name of that marathoner? I've, he's from the Bay Area, and I can't remember his name. He's actually done that.
1: Um, the one from like
2: Forrest Gump, I think is who you're thinking of. No, it was no, like no. It's like 10,
1: 15 years ago, right?
0: Yeah, maybe. In any case, there, there's your answer. So our final question you have the opportunity to lead the world's most successful sustainability company. Mm. What do you have it focus on?
2: Oh, that's a fascinating question. I think, this is left field, I think that the focus should be nuclear power and a way to make nuclear power bulletproof safe. Hmm. Because I don't think that the sustainable energy products that we have available currently, wind, solar, can ramp up fast enough to really have a lasting effect on uh, climate change. And I think solar is, act- I'm sorry, I think nuclear is probably closer to that than we I think it is, but it has such a bad rap in the US that it's almost, a, it's just a non-starter.
0: You know, I, I agree with you, actually. Um, yeah. There's there's a number of micro reactors. I, I don't know, that's that's certainly not the right term, but I think Toshiba makes some that are they're self-contained and sealed, and like really, they Wow. Um, the problem is that you know they need to be close to point of delivery, uh-huh. and nobody wants them, right? Right. Right. <laughs> right, um, right. It's mostly irrational, I would say. Uh, that you know that they're, as far as I understand, their kind of meltdown uh, would be the most remote of consequences, and you know as we've seen, like. Scale is not your friend
2: with a nuclear right. reactor in the long run. Right,
1: right. right. That is a fascinating idea.
2: The other thing I'd love, and just because I don't know anything about it, uh, I have a friend who drives a hydrogen car. Uh, and I read in somewhere recently that Japan has committed to hydrogen as, I forget what, in the, what the context was, either powering the country or powering its commercial fleet or something like that. An, an energy that produces as its waste water, essentially, uh, seems very right. attractive. I don't really get the dynamics of what it takes. I know there's some mining involved which may make it not very sustainable, but uh, I've been fascinated by that as well. I'm trying to remember what car company actually yeah.
0: released, a hydrogen fuel cell.
2: Yeah, I've written in it. You know, I, I, I am fascinated by renewable energy because that's what I live on, on a boat. I right. require it to make the, the electrical systems, the navigation systems, and the communication systems work. And it's all done by solar and by a hydro generator, which is just looks like a tiny outboard on the back of the boat, hangs hangs a right. propeller in the water that spins a generator. And uh, so you become really attuned to what a lavish lifestyle we lead, how energy intensive our lives are, especially now that Bitcoin <laughs> has uh, exploded and really what it takes to produce that. And it's a lot of fun to engage with it, become conscious, whatever I spend, I need to produce it's a it's a neat neat exercise.
1: I've got to imagine your concept of waste is highly evolved, right? Like how to avoid excess waste.
2: Well, it's how to avoid excess waste, but it's it's before that even. It's how to how to avoid taking on what you don't need. Um, yep. A little less so maybe in my particular line of work. If I was a racer, then it would be huge. Keeping the boat light is the name of the game right. in my world. Boats are heavy because they're so strong, and so I can afford to take on extra weight. But still, I, I lived in a space the size of a walk-in closet for over a year and had everything in that walk-in closet that I needed to survive. So yes, you're right. You count constantly.
1: Minimalism. (laughs) So we're done with the game, just FYI. Um, I'm wondering if you can help us visualize. In your moments of Zen, what does it look like and feel like? I know I'm getting deep into your head, but I'm just wondering what those moments are.
2: Uh, I've, I've never thought of it that way, so this answer may not be a bullseye, but I think it's in the neighborhood. You get into a rhythm at sea, and it's just beautiful. Imagine that you're in an environment where everything you can see and feel is in motion. The boat is moving forward. It's also going up, down, and sideways. It's maneuvering itself up and over these waves. The waves are moving; they're rolling heavily from one direction of you know one horizon to the other. They're driven by the wind that is blowing into the sails. That night, the moon comes up; the stars come out. And you, you, out a clear night at sea, you you feel like you're inside a dome of stars. Uh, out in the middle of the ocean, there's just no light pollution and the stars are so bright that it's hard to find the constellations. Right. You know, Contrast that to the stars outside my house here in suburban San Francisco, where if I'm lucky, I can see the constellations. The sky is so bright at night. It's almost like a sandy beach of stars. So you get into the sense of everything around me is moving, and you almost feel like, and this is going to sound strange, but this is the, exactly the sensation that the boat is still and the world is moving underneath it. You're almost like you're on a conveyor belt.
1: Oh, I can completely picture that. Hmm.
2: And you feel like you are the center of a perpetual motion machine. Everything is changing but nothing is changing, everything is moving but nothing is moving. And it really feels on good days, and there are lots of good days, that you could just go like this forever. Although I don't think this would be true because being in a space capsule would be very different from being on a boat where you spend most of your time yeah. outside, but I've often felt this is analogous to space travel, where it's such great lengths of time, at least in a human, from a human perspective that you're talking about, and having it go on and on forever. just It feels like that's what you really want a lot of the time out there. And then on other days, you feel like, you know what? I just would really like a beer. <laughs> um, and when you pull into Halifax and the, the, the harbormaster hands you a wallet full of cash, That was sent ahead by your friends so you could buy a round of beers at the Yacht Club bar. You think, well, that's just grand. I'll do that right now. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just, you know, you live, you live, you're like a person who lives with a foot in two worlds. There's this world out in the middle of the ocean that is completely wild and completely other than. And then you live this world in the big city and they're both lovely.
1: Well, you know, in generating your list of words, it was very clear that you not only keep good company, but they actually understand you.
2: Oh, that's very,
1: very well. There were several words that came up more than once, the exact word. So which is which is a beautiful thing. Hopefully not stubborn. Uh no, <laughs> I'm
2: not gonna tell you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but hey, you know, you
1: can be stubborn in a good way. We like to say that in my family. See, we're all okay. stubborn, but in a good way.
0: Was it you who said that on Is that what you're saying?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did not say it, but I, I am guilty of being called it at times.
2: So. Yeah. Well, thank you. I love those words. Those are great. I really appreciate those. I wrote them down even.
1: Oh, that's, uh, and you know, you'll have the recording later on too. Good. Um, so Randall, thank you very much for joining us today. Unless Justin has another parting question,
0: uh, no, uh, uh, no question. Just a comment. I'm glad there are people like you in the world who do these heroic things that I can live vicariously through.
1: And I just want people to understand the magnitude of you know what you've done.
2: Well, thank you, Anju and Justin. That was a lot of fun. Uh,
0: one last thing. Would you like to plug your website if you want to tell people where they can go check in on your adventures?
2: Yes, please. Uh, I have a website called RandallReeves.live for people who aren't sailors who may be looking for someone uh, to do um, some speaking for them. Uh, That is a really good general introduction to the Figure Eight Voyage for people who are are wanting to dig in further into the day in, day outs of that adventure. Uh, There's a website called www.figure8voyage.com. That's figure, word, eight, the number, and voyage, the word. And that's where I posted every day from sea. I posted in videos and pictures and and, uh, and words uh, every day from sea for the two full attempts.
1: While we're plugging things, don't you have an ink named after you?
2: Oh, yeah. Randall
1: Reeves Blue or something <laughs> like that?
2: We have a friend of the family who's an artist in the UK. My wife's British. Nick Stewart, he did a couple of pen and ink drawings in this lovely color of blue that I, I saw and said, well, where on earth did you get such a shade of fountain pen ink? And he said, I made it. Uh, I have made a color of ocean blue fountain pen ink that I've named Randall. And I think he actually won a couple of awards for it. I don't, I know nothing about fountain pens or <laughs> fountain pen ink.
1: I love it. But it really is
2: uh, really lovely. And he does, he does some really great work.
1: That's awesome. All right. Well, this was great. Thank you again for taking the time. Say hi to Joe. Yes.
2: Thank you. we Will do. we Will do. She, she's landing as I speak. Oh, good. So uh, I'm going to hop in the car and go get her. Thank you to the two of you. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to Transpose. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, don't forget to switch it up a little.